So let's pray together. Father, I ask that in this next moment, Father, that this would provide an opportunity for us to really look at our lives, to look at ourselves, and to see what drives us, to see what motivates us in our faith, to see what our faith is rooted in. Lord, that we might get quiet and really honest with ourselves as every Christian should all the time. Lord, I pray that this sermon, Father, I pray that this discussion or the opening up of a discussion, Lord, I pray that as different texts are brought to bear, are brought to surface, and we deal with those, I pray that they might resonate in the dark places, and they might shed light to areas that we are blind to. Father, this is not going to be super easy for me, not because it's hard to teach this, but because of my own personal inward struggles with these type of things. Lord, with my own personal introspection regarding my faith, regarding my belief, regarding my hope. So, Lord, I pray that you might be gracious to all of us, gracious to see, gracious to hear, gracious to apply. Lord, that we might not be so proud as to think this doesn't apply to me. That we wouldn't be so proud to look to the person to our left or to our right or front or back and say this must be them. Lord, that we would consider these things which have tremendous implication for our lives and for our eternity. So Lord, speak to our hearts as we desperately need you to this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. So we're going to do something a little bit different this morning. We're going to deviate for a Sunday, maybe two, depending on how far I get. We're going to deviate from the book of John, because we've been walking through the book of John. We're about to start chapter, uh, we're, in, we're in chapter 5, about to start chapter 6 pretty soon in a couple of weeks. So we're moving along, we're trekking well with that. But there's been some, there's a reality that's that's been happening since the beginning of time, but but recently there's been been some things in the media and stuff that has come to surface where I just thought I want to kind of address this. I want to, as a shepherd, as someone who has the responsibility of equipping the saints for the work of service, someone who has the responsibility of doing my best in whatever way I can to educate you or to give you a framework or to give you some kind of help so that you can combat what we might be facing. And before you worry too much let me just say this there's in recent news and we're not going to discuss all the news we're not going to discuss all these things and you may have no clue about this and that's that's okay but uh but basically so there's been yet another leader in the christian faith who has in his own words walked away from the faith you know and you may not hear about that you may not be in those circles you know you may not read gospel coalition you may not be following desiring god you might, might not be reading those things i would encourage you to do that so that you can be informed so you can know how potential brothers and sisters are struggling among you so that you can know how to pray for people so that you can have your ear to the ground so that you can know what's happening in the christian world in the christian culture and one of those things is one of the leading figures of our day has, has, has walked away. And this isn't the first time. 
This has happened time and time again. It will continue to happen. It's been happening for 2,000 years. It's been happening since time began. All right, there have been those who claim to follow Jesus, follow God, and they walk away. They denounce the faith. They call themselves today ex-Christians. And I'm going to end with how we should respond, but I also want to begin with that. I want to begin by trying to set a tone so that you know where your thought processes need to be as we start to walk through some things in the Scriptures. And we start to deal with this issue in part. And that is, it should be very sobering to you and very sobering to me every time we see someone who's walked with Jesus, presumably, for 10, 20, 30 years. And then all of a sudden they say, I don't believe what I used to believe. I've abandoned all these things. And to quote one particular person to say, the definition from which I operated on as far as being a Christian, I no longer consider myself that. And this person considered himself a Christian under a biblical definition. He wrote books under a biblical definition, and his name is Joshua Harris. There was a book that he wrote in 1997 as a 21-year-old young man called I Kiss Dating Goodbye. And this is public knowledge, so I don't have an issue saying this publicly. But he's not the first, and he won't be the last. And he's written this, and he hasn't written a whole bunch about it. It started when he, he a few years ago, he recanted on the book that he wrote called I Kissed Dating Goodbye about, about purity, about no sex before marriage, about all these kind of things, and the biblical stance of marriage, and all these things that I would affirm, and I believe the Bible would affirm. And he recanted those things a few years ago, which really was the beginning of a downward spiral, a spiral that may have led to apostasy, or a spiral that in the best case leads to him just losing his mind for a moment, just like David did with Bathsheba, and maybe the Lord will bring him to repentance. But when we hear stories like that, when we hear of people like Derek Webb, who was a Christian author all throughout my high school and uh, Christian, uh, I'm sorry, Christian writer for uh, music. Uh, he wrote music, great writer, great lyricist, super solid in his theology, and years ago, the same thing. He recanted. He said, I no longer believe. He said, Why Christianity Has Made Him a Better Atheist is the title of a podcast I listened to the other day, you know, as he started to articulate where he is and why he's there and his problem with religion, his problem with Christianity. And so Joshua Harris, after a couple of years ago, renouncing or recanting everything that he wrote in his book, is now he's come out and said, I'm just, I'm just not a Christian. I'm just not a Christian anymore. So when I hear things like that, all kinds of questions start to surface in my mind. All kinds of questions. He says he was a Christian. What does he mean? Does he mean to say that he was a Christian, that he was in Christ, that Christ rescued him from darkness, and then somehow he's back in darkness? Is, th is that what he means to say? Because then the question is, can that happen? If that can happen, what does it say about the atonement of Christ? What does it say about his power? What does it say about, about his sufficiency? What does it say about the Holy Spirit who seals us as a promise for those who are in Christ? What does it say about all these things? Because that statement understood in the context of I was in Christ, now I'm not. As if it's a switch that you and I can turn on just as well as we can turn off. It completely attacks the doctrine of salvation. Completely. And there are people that buy into this idea that just as sure as you can enter into a saving relationship with Jesus, you can also work your way out of one. And I think these issues need to be addressed. Because I don't know, I haven't had a conversation with every one of you. But in a group this size, I know we're not this megachurch, but in a group this size, statistically speaking, it just wouldn't surprise me 
if someone is kind of confused on the issue. Or maybe someone goes to Hebrews chapter 6, verses 4 through 6, which we'll mention in a little while, that talks about those who have tasted, those who have been enlightened, those who have experienced this, experienced that, and and have heard and seen the word of God and seen his power. And it says, and they walk away, it's impossible for them to be restored again to repentance. Maybe you see texts like that and you think, see, you can lose your salvation. When the totality of scripture points the other way and says, no, you are being kept. Nothing can separate us from the love of God is what the scripture says so here's my hope for today I hope that today serves as a kickstart for a discussion that will both edify and cause the body of Christ to spend serious introspection a serious introspective time looking at our lives and the true source of our faith because I think moments like this demand that and I think it's good for us I think it's good if we look and we see someone who has fallen. Not that it's good that they've fallen or that they've left the faith or that they've done this. I'm not saying that's good. But when it causes us to cling more closely to truth, this is good. Because it does one of two things. It either rattles you to where you run away from reality or you run towards truth. And I think that is where it can be a good thing. So here's the objective, to help establish a framework that we might think rightly towards the doctrine of eternal security and the power of the gospel. This is more of a topical sermon. I will use a lot of text in their context to support what I'm arguing in defense of eternal security, in defense of the power of the gospel. But just know that our normal routine is to walk through text uh, you know, to, to, with exposition. Expositional preaching is what we what our normal practice is. So if you're listening online, know that that's our normal practice. But today, I think what's happening in the Christian community warrants attention given to this. So I think there's a lot of questions that come up. I'm not going to tell you how many I have. I'm just going to start working through them. Things that I think of, things that I think maybe you might encounter when you're thinking about this. Things that maybe you're not bold enough to vocalize because you fear what people might think of you or what it might mean of you in yourself. So I want to be able to vocalize these things to try to cut that off at the past, to try to offer a preemptive answer to a question that you might be having but unwilling to voice. So it's one of the questions that this scenario raises of leaving the faith of all these things or of what happened with Josh and what happened with, with Derek Webb and so many others is the question of leaving the faith. Can you leave the faith? Can you walk away from salvation? Now, I'm not, there's, I'm, I've created two different categories here, leaving the faith and eternal security. So those are two different things that I'm going to be dealing with. All right, so, and I'll explain how, they, how, they're, how they're different. So the question of leaving the faith. So kind of the text that we're going to use as a root text is 1 John tap, chapter 2, verses 15 through 19. So I will read that for you. You can follow along with me. So 1 John chapter 2, verses 15 through 19. Paul, or I'm sorry, John is writing to Christians so that he might encourage them in their spiritual development, that he might remind them of what they have in Christ, but also to warn them. So there's a little bit of the context. So he's admonishing them in a loving way. He's saying, hey, don't love the world, all these things. So here we get in the text, verse 15, it says, do not love the world or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the desires of the flesh and the desires of the eyes and the pride of life, it's not from the Father. 
but it is from the world. And the world is passing away along with its desires, but whoever does the will of God abides forever. So there's your admonishment. He says, don't love the world. Because this is what happens when an intoxication for the world, when, a, uh, when, when, when we appease our lusts for the world, this is what happens. He says, children, it is the last hour. And as you have heard that Antichrist is coming, so now many Antichrists have come. Therefore, we know that it is the last hour. They went out from us, but they were not of us. For if they had been of us, they would have continued with us. But they went out that it might become plain that they are all not of us. So this is what John says. He just paints it very, very clearly here. He says, there are those who walked with us. There are those who journeyed with us. There are those who spoke with fluent Christianity. And by everything that we could see, it looked legitimate. Just as it rattles us to see a faithful leader of decades to walk away, and we really don't know how to reconcile that in our mind, especially when they've been fruit-bearing. We don't know what to do with that. It blows our mind. It turns our world upside down. John, if we look back, we're saying, this is nothing new. This is not a new concept. This is something that has been happening, and there's an answer to this. There's a lot of other questions that come up that I think the Bible addresses, but there is an answer to this. And simply put, the people that went away were never of us to begin with. You see, there's a game that can be played for a season. But I think the true test, among others, of whether or not we're in Christ is endurance. It's whether or not we remain. Now, there's things like repentance and other things that are the markers of someone who's in Christ. But listen to what John says. Listen to how he follows up his statement about them leaving. He says, for if they had belonged to us, they would have remained with us. He's saying that's how you would know. That's how you would know. If they would have stayed, we would have known that something was legitimate. So this is why John writes. He wants to admonish them. He wants to tell them that this is going to happen. This is not something that should surprise you. It's been happening for thousands of years. So when we hear of these things, it should devastate us. It should cause us reason for tremendous grief. It should. It should cause us to be introspective and say, what am I banking on? What if you're somebody that your hopes were in Joshua Harris? What if your faith was in man and how well he's convinced of truth, but you haven't been convinced yourself? What if your faith is nothing more than riding the coattails of someone else who has put in the work and has been changed by God? That's not saving faith. Now, I'll talk about that more in a little bit because Jonathan Edwards addresses that very thing because it is an issue. But I don't think we need to panic. At times, as time progresses, we will begin to see things for what they really are. There was an article written years ago that Ed Stetzer wrote called From Nominals to Nuns. Everybody's having panic attacks because church attendance, the numbers are in decline. Well, this isn't a part of my notes, but I just want to let you know there's a difference in church attendance being in decline and stating that Christianity is in decline. Christianity cannot be in decline. That negates 
the security of the believer. That negates the fact that we are sealed with the Holy Spirit of promise. That negates all these scriptures, all these realities from the Bible that say we are kept and nothing can separate us. He will not let us go. We cannot fall away from him if we're truly in him because there's a supernatural keeping at work that God is doing as the active agent that prohibits us from doing what would otherwise be our most natural inclination and that is to flee that is to run from the arms of God that's why we claim that the only hope that we have for remaining in God is God himself that's it we put it on him I know what I would run to, and it's not Jesus. I know what my flesh desires, and I know there's nothing in me that would say, but Jesus is more desirable. It's God who's showing me that Jesus is more desirable, and he's keeping me there. There was a time not so long ago when it was taboo to be anywhere other than with the church body on Sunday mornings. Maybe you remember that. I grew up in that, and that's not everywhere. That's specifically in the Bible Belt South, then no matter what you believed, that's what you did. Because you're brought up in that culture. You're brought up in that culture. But the reality was that for some or for many, being a part of the local church during that time was derivative of one of two things, either your culture or your conviction. And I would say it's the same thing now. You are here today for one of two reasons. You're either driven by culture or conviction are you here because it's just what you do in the bible belt on sundays it's just what always been done or is there a conviction that says i do this because of my allegiance to a king and i do this because i see in the scriptures that when i am made new when i am changed that all these things take place and my desire is to gather with the body and to be fed by the word of god and to be challenged to be admonished to be changed so that i leave this place and i look more like jesus leaving than i did when i arrived there's a big difference in just joining in the cultural ebb and flow and actually being driven by conviction culture dictates a lot of things i grew up in a church that was uh, all the churches I was a part of until Haven Ridge were basically high church, wear your suit, wear your tie, and all of these things. It's not a biblical prescription, but it's a cultural description. There's a cultural movement that says this is what we wear. Just like you wore robes in the first century, you wear this. Just like there's a culture of we just have an organ, and then you introduce a band. It's a cultural shift. It's a cultural thing. It's fine. There's nothing wrong with an organ. There's nothing wrong with drums. There's nothing wrong with these things. I've had people tell me before drums are not okay because they're African. Where people come up with some wild stuff. But at its root, it's, it's culture. We do so many things because of culture. What we wear, the music that we like as far as church is concerned. Many people are associated with Christianity, Christianity culturally, but nothing more. They're brought up and swept up in the current of church culture this happens all the time i'm not saying it's bad i'm thankful that i was brought up and swept up into a church culture because it was in that church culture that i finally was introduced to the gospel and it's because of that current because of that culture that i was in that i was exposed to all these things and it developed my worldview so i'm not saying it's a bad thing but if all it ever is is a cultural current that you're just going along with, but there's no convictions that are yours, that's a problem. And could it be, 
Could it be that that is what is happening to so many people who are leaving the faith? Could it be the product of poor discipleship? To be sure now, if you're connected with a church that upholds the fundamentals of the faith, a church that subscribes to the moral absolutes of the Bible and to the exclusivity of Christianity. Jesus is the only way, period. This is what the Bible says. God made man and woman, and that defines marriage, period. If you uphold these things, you're a bigot. You're a promoter and an advocate of hate and hate speech. You're intolerant. That's what's happening now. That's what's happening now if you hold to these fundamentals. But as I've read over the years, so many who have gone the other way and have started entertaining other cultural shifts and other cultural moves, and they look less and less like followers of Jesus, they look less and less like Jesus, and they look like they subscribe to some other book that's not the Bible, living, active, and inerrant. And what happens is you start to see these things and you start to listen to what they say. And it sounds like maybe they were on the cultural bandwagon and didn't have true convictions of their own. And I think that's a tremendous concern. There's nothing like seeing a spiritual leader fall. It will rattle you. It will shake you. I've had students, and that rattled me. I've had students that I would testify in court and say, yes, they're in Christ. There's fruit in their life. And I watch them now. And they're entrenched in so much sin that I can only pray that they're in Christ, but they've lost their way. And God, for whatever reason, has allowed them into the season like he did for David, for his good purposes to his good end and glorifying means. I have to hope for that. I pray for that. Because the alternative is that they were never in Christ to begin with. The option that's not on the table is that they were legitimately in Christ, and now they're not. That's an impossibility. That's why it's impossible for the church to be in decline because that seems to imply or it directly implies that Jesus doesn't have quite a firm a grip on his children as we think. It renders him impotent and it calls into question the power of the atonement and that is an offense. The issue of falling away or leaving the faith or becoming ex-Christian is a major concern. There are those who maintain the position that such people must have never been in Christ at all, which is, I think, the biblical position. And yet, there are those who would argue that salvation can be lost just as sure as it was found. And for that reason, it's, work, and for that reason, it's worth raising the question concerning our, uh, concerning our eternal security. So that's the next question I think that's on the table. So we deal with what it is leaving the faith. How do we define that? How does the Bible answer that? First John, they were never of us because they didn't remain. They were never in Christ because those who are in Christ abide in him. They remain in him, not because they are strong enough, not because they stood the test of time, but because Jesus kept them through the end. So there's the question of losing our salvation. And I've met a lot of Christians that believe this. There's a lot of denominations that will, that, will, that will teach this. People who love Jesus, people who legitimately love Christ, believe this. And I could talk about this for a while, but I'm going to give you a snapshot, and I'm going to address a couple of the offenses that are directly connected with the doctrine of being able to lose your salvation. First of all, it is 
Is it possible, was my question, is it possible for someone who has been brought into spiritual life to return to spiritual death? Is it possible? Now, there's one caveat I want to introduce, and that's the book of Hebrews chapter 6. Now, this is a weighty, weighty text, and I don't have time to go through everything, but I want you to hear this so that I gave it some attention. Here's Hebrews chapter 6, verses 4 through 6. This is a go-to passage for many who would say, see, you can lose your salvation. I just don't think it it considers the greater context of the Bible. So starting in verse 4, it says, It is impossible in the case of those who have once been enlightened, who have tasted the heavenly gift and have shared in the Holy Spirit, and have tasted the goodness of the word of God and the powers of the age to come, and then have fallen away to restore them again to repentance, since they are crucifying once again the Son of God to their own harm and holding him up in contempt. Crucifying again for themselves the Son of God. In other words, your atonement didn't do enough the first time. And holding him in contempt. Serious, serious offense. Now I can see where someone would look at this text and say, okay, what, what do I do with this? Surely it means that they were in Christ because they've tasted, they've been enlightened, they've experienced all these things. The word of God, all this is, is there. What do, you, what, what, do you, what do you do? What does it mean they can't, they can't be restored? What does it mean they can't, they can't repent or they won't find repentance? It either means one of two things. It either means you can lose your salvation or it means that this is someone who never had it and their heart is so deceitful and so destructive that the true motives of their hearts aren't even repentance at all. Because let me be clear. You sit in here mostly every Sunday. You hear the word of God. You hear stories, you hear testimonies of God's faithfulness, of God doing good things, and you're exposed to those things. Maybe you're here with a friend, or you bring a friend, or, or something, or maybe one time you brought someone that's not in Christ, or they don't claim to be a Christian, and they're exposed to these things over and over and over again. If you're in the Bible Belt South, most likely you've been brought up and you've been exposed to gospel. You've been exposed to gospel conversation. Maybe not everybody, but I would say that's a safe bet, statistically speaking. And you've heard these things, you've heard stories, but you reject, you turn away, you say, no thanks, I'll take the world. You can keep Jesus. I think those are the type of people that the author of Hebrews is addressing because that is tasting to a degree. It is being enlightened. You've been taught. You've received truth. You've been exposed to the word of God. You've heard the gospel. And he says, but it is of the highest degree of offense to be exposed to these things and yet hold Jesus in contempt and crucify Jesus again. I think the totality of Scripture provides the lenses through which we can understand Hebrews 6. Complex, yes. But everything surrounding it, all these other texts, seem to point to a security that we have in Christ for those who are truly in Jesus. And that's how we interpret Hebrews 6. So the answer is absolutely not. It is not possible for someone who has been brought into true spiritual life to then return to spiritual death. Now, I don't just want to say that as some passing statement without giving you some kind of information, without giving you some kind of platform that you can stand on. I've recorded here, just in my thinking, my praying, and, 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 and the conversations I've had with others, I've recorded what I'm, what I'm calling five of the major offenses that accompany this doctrine of you can lose your salvation. So here's offense number one. And here's where I'm going to make my argument 
for your eternal security for those who are in Christ. Defense number one, it assumes that creation has more power than the creator. It assumes this. If we're looking at Romans chapter 8, verses 35 through 39, we read in context of saving grace, salvific love. That's the context. Paul is writing to Christians and he is speaking in the context of Christianity. And when he mentions the love of God, he's speaking of a salvific love. He's speaking of a love that only the saints enjoy with God. Only. And he says things like, nothing can separate you from the love of God. If I can insert this, nothing can separate you from the saving love of God. It seems that death cannot, life cannot, angels, rulers, things that are present, things that are come, powers, heights, or depths. But get this, any other created thing. Any other created thing. And so then the question is, are you a created thing? Yeah. Yeah, powers, rulers, depths, heights, but any other created thing. You see, that's why it's such a great offense. How dare I think that I can remove myself from the sovereign saving hand of God, purchased through the potent substitutionary atonement of Jesus? Who am I that I could break that bind? that bond. Who am I to do that? It negates the cross altogether because that is why Jesus died. Because if I could break it, I would. (laughs) Offense number two, it makes God a liar. So offense number one is it assumes that creation has more power than the creator. Offense number two, it makes God a liar. Not just a liar, it makes him capricious, meaning it makes him changeable. But God is immutable. He doesn't change. He says this over and over. It makes God a liar. It makes him changeable or capricious. It makes him imperfect. 1 Peter chapter 1, 3-5. through five. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to this great mercy, he has acute, he has acute, uh, sorry, according to his great mercy, he has caused us, I mistyped that, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. Listen to this. To an inheritance that is imperishable, that is undefiled and unfading, kept, kept in heaven for you who by God's power are being guarded through faith for salvation, ready to be revealed in the last time. If God, before the foundation of the world, because that's what the Scripture says, that He chose us in Him before the foundation of the world, if that took place, not because of what I had done or what I would do, Romans 9, if God did this, if God rescued me, if God saved me, if God did these things and He stored up for me an inheritance waiting for me, If I could lose it, what does it say about God setting aside an inheritance for me that he will have to destroy? That he that will perish, that will fade, that will be defiled. Either I cannot lose my salvation or God is a liar. It also makes God capricious. It makes him changeable because he says in his word that he doesn't change. And he gives us this promise of an inheritance. If God changes from, let me set this up for you, waiting for you, I'm going to remove it. 
It makes him changeable. It makes him capricious. But it also makes him imperfect. I would submit to you that following that course of thought that you could lose your salvation and then you arrive at some place like this, you would have to admit if you're consistent that maybe God made a mistake and maybe he made an inheritance for someone that it didn't belong to. It questions his omniscience, does it not? Let's just go with that. Not just omnipotence, not just all these things, but his omniscience, what he knows, all of these things. Did God not know <laughs> that you would walk away? Did God not know that this would happen? Yet he's, he has this imperishable, unfading, undefiled inheritance waiting for you. And that's not the only place we see verbiage of an inheritance. Offense number three. Not only does it make God a liar, it makes him changeable and imperfect, but it diminishes the power of the Holy Spirit. Diminishes the power of the Holy Spirit. In Ephesians 1.13, in a context of salvation, Paul's writing to this church in Ephesus that he was a part in planting, that he pastored for a season, and he's there, or he's writing to them, and he's wanting them to understand the blessings that they have in salvation in Jesus Christ. And he says, in him, Jesus, you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation... And believed in him were sealed with the Holy Spirit of promise. Who is, listen to this, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possessions of it? I mean, I could have lumped that into offense number two, but it fits here in offense number three. And just so you can't say, well, you're just proof texting, the context is salvation. That is the context. I'm using it in its right context. Understand this, that the keeping aspect of salvation belongs to God. Offense number three, it denies the sustaining power of God in keeping his beloved to the very end. Last week we mentioned Jude 1, 1, or Jude 1, where it says, to those who are called, to the beloved, to those who are being kept, and I showed you that it was a, 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 a present participle, right? We don't do a lot of Greek stuff in here, right? But I just wanted to emphasize the, the potency of the word in that it shows continuous action, that God is upholding, that he is keeping us saved. But to say that we could lose salvation denies the keeping power and the keeping work, the sustaining, continuous work of God in making sure that we make it to the end. I mean, God's serious when he says he doesn't want to lose one of his own. He's serious about that. He's serious when he talks about his love and his affections for his children. He's serious when he says, I do not desire that any would perish. In the context of the second coming, he's serious about saying, I want to bring all mine to myself, all my sheep. I want them to be here. This is why I believe the Lord is tarrying. This is why I believe the Lord hasn't come yet, because all that the Lord intends to bring to him have not come yet. So I believe that. If we say we can lose salvation, we call into question and we scrutinize the very reality that we see in Jude that we are being kept, and that is an offense. Offense number five, and they're all offensive, but the one that settles as the most offensive to me is that it subverts, it subverts or weakens the atonement of Christ. It makes Christ impotent. It makes his work impotent. Obviously, I'm not God, and I'm not going to pretend to understand the mind of God, but I can't imagine 
how that resonates with God. To subvert the atonement of Christ. I can't imagine the anger, the righteous indignation, the holy indignation against such things. This means that Jesus' death, his total appeasement of God's wrath for all who would believe was not enough to secure you. And if it's not enough to secure you, it's not enough to secure anyone. If you can lose your salvation, A, you would. B, if you could lose your salvation, then anybody can lose your salvation. And if you can, you have zero hope. How can people who think this sleep at night? How can they sleep at night? I have talked to people that sat there and said, well, you better just hope that you don't have an impure thought before a bus runs over you because you'll be in hell. Like, really? Really? So was that the one sin that you don't believe Jesus atoned for, or how does that work? It makes zero sense, and it's an offense to the atonement of Christ. This doctrine completely undermines the redemptive narrative of the entire Bible. Completely undermines it. And quite frankly, this doctrine is a spit in the face of Christ's substitutionary work. And I think it's worth addressing. But it's not the only one worth addressing. There's another question that I see that comes up, and it's this. This is more practical, I think. How do you reconcile watching a leader that has fallen? Maybe, maybe Joshua Harris, prayerfully, prayerfully he repents. Prayerfully he's in Christ, and the devil's just all over him, and he's in a season where he just needs the Lord to lift him out of the mire. Maybe that's what's happening Or maybe it's that he is, in fact, not in Christ and he needs to repent unto salvation. I don't know. We pray for both, right? That should be our posture toward this. It should grieve us. But imagine the people that sat under him. Imagine the people that read him. Solid theology. Solid doctrinal teaching. Seemingly fruitful labor in his life. People watch him for decades and see, wow, God is doing all kinds of stuff in the ministry that he's attached to. And then all of a sudden, you're face-to-face with this possibility this probability that he was never in Christ to begin with how do you reconcile that in your mind how do we come to terms with that you as a believer if there's someone that mentored you discipled you all your life and man you put a lot of eggs in that person's basket and all of a sudden they just shift on you they become ex-christian they just walk away does that not shake you to your bones does that not rattle you to death because you put a lot of stock in that person's faith, which is why, again, the Bible reminds us, don't put your faith in man, because man will let you down. But it would rattle you to the core, and it would cause a lot of questions, I would think, to come up and say, what does this mean of my faith? What does this mean of me? And then you're like, but God, are you, if he's lost, how is there fruits? These are questions that, as I'm reading this stuff, and, 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 I, and I've faced these questions over the years when I hear these stories of people that I, that, I, that I admire and that I've looked up to and have played roles in discipling me in my life indirectly, and these questions come up. And this most recent one, I just decided, let's just start addressing it. Let's just tackle it. Let's just think through it because it bothers me. So the question is, what do we do when we see fruit produced from a rotten branch? How do we reconcile the seemingly fruitful ministry of those who have fallen how do we do that there's a problem the problem is given to us in the text the book of matthew book of matthew teaches us i didn't write the 
the, the reference down here, Matthew 7, uh, yeah, Matthew 7, beginning in verse 15. Familiar text, Jesus says, Beware of the false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly are ravenous wolves. You will recognize them by their fruit. He said, Are grapes gathered from thorn bushes or figs from thistles? So every healthy tree, get this, bears good fruit. But the diseased tree bears bad fruit. How does that apply to someone like Joshua Harris? To someone that it seems that under their ministry that God had done so many wonderful things. Does it discount all the things that the Lord had done? Absolutely not. Absolutely not. A healthy tree cannot bear good cannot a healthy tree cannot bear bad fruit, nor can a diseased tree bear good fruit. Every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. Thus, you will realize them by their fruits. The works of the unrighteous are not honorable to God. But that doesn't mean that they don't have effect. Let me explain myself. And I will lean on Philippians 1 to explain myself. Paul is in prison, and Paul says, listen, I'm paraphrasing. He says, I'm in prison, and I'm going to rejoice. Why? Because Christ is being preached. Well, why would Paul rejoice? He says, some preach out of selfish ambition. Some preach from impure motives. Some are completely self-interested when they do these things, wanting the accolades, wanting the ticker tape parade and the affirmations of men. He says, I don't care. As long as Christ is preached, I will rejoice. Now, I, I know that you all remember the Philippians 1 sermon that I preached, like the back of your hand, but let me just remind you, the power is not in the messenger, unless it's Jesus. The power's in the message. The power's in the gospel. So Paul's saying, you know what? <laughs> this is the great thing. You can have your crazy motives. You can have all these things going on. You can do all these things, but if Christ is preached, that's what I'm rejoicing in. Because man will let me down. Man will fail. We're broken. We're fallen. So the power's not in man. It's not in his or her ability to be eloquent. It's not in her coercive tactics. It's not in the fact that she can wax eloquent on the gospel when she's door-to-door witnessing to somebody or he does this. He says it's not about that. He said what matters is the truth that you are imparting. That's where the power is. And this is a huge weight that's lifted from us. Because I'm not always eloquent, much less super eloquent. I can't always think through what I'm wanting to present when I'm talking to someone about spiritual things. Sometimes I fall on my face. And I've stood before people when I was presenting the gospel. And I thought I butchered it. And then they respond by saying, I need Jesus. Did you listen to me? And God just made it evident that you didn't do anything, son. Thank you for your faithfulness. Thank you for trusting the gospel enough that it might impart power to people. Not that I always did that or do that. But in that moment, that's what the Lord revealed to me. And the same sentiment rings true here. Is that God is bigger and God is better than man's motives, than man's lostness, than man's pride, than man's ability or inability. I mean, we know from the scripture that God uses the foolish to confound the wise. 
This is how God works. He speaks from donkeys. He uses those who are the guttermost, like Abraham, to lead a nation. He does these things. This is God just showing His nature. This is God just saying, I'm painting this big picture for you so that when you get to places like this in 2019 where a spiritual leader of decades renounces his faith, that you won't be rattled. Because the great hope of all things doesn't rest on Joshua Harris's shoulders. It rests on Jesus. I can understand how the works of someone can still be effective. But how could that someone live in such deception? I'm going to continue this next week, but I am going to finish with this point right here. Okay, because I've got several more that I think are worth giving attention to. And then we'll be back in John, walking through it expositionally. I think this brings up the question of the heart's condition. Because this is the root of all things here. This is the root of Harris's problem. Whether he's regenerate and he needs to repent and be brought back into right fellowship with Jesus and with the church, prayerfully that's it. Whether he needs to repent unto salvation because he's a lost man who played the game, who, whose heart deceived him. Because the Bible has a lot to say about the heart. The problem is that culture has a lot to say about the heart as well. One of the mantras of our culture, the one of the mantras of Hollywood is to follow your heart. The heart wants what the heart wants, right? I mean, Hallmark has made billions on the heart and on emotions and on affections and on lust and all of these things. And that's the mantra of man is follow your heart. What does your heart tell you? I've got news for you today. The heart is deceitful. The heart is desperately wicked above all things, the Scripture says, Jeremiah 17, 9. James addresses the church in James chapter 4, verse 1, because there's fighting, there's quarreling, there's all of these things that happen. These are Christians acting, acting like idiots. He says, what are you doing? He says, you, you, you're, you're doing all these things. You, you quarrel and you fight. And he says, is this not because... Your passions are at war within you. What is he saying? He's saying this is a heart issue. This is a heart issue. If I have my plans and I come home and I want to do this or I want to do that and something throws my plans off kilter and I get frustrated and act like a, act like a, you know, a, a nutcase over it and I'm just like so mad and I'm just bitter and, and I'm in a foul mood and I treat my wife like a dog and I do all these things, the problem is not the change of plants it's my heart it's alan didn't get what alan wanted alan's idol wasn't addressed wasn't polished wasn't put up on the shelf for me to admire and so i get upset because alan didn't get what i wanted because my passions were at war within me this is how the bible speaks of the heart so daddy's if I ever hear you telling your daughters to follow your heart, you'll probably get punched in the throat. That's a loving admonishment from your pastor, from my fist to your neck. There it is, okay? This applies to both the unregenerate and the regenerate. Follow me on this. I didn't think so at first, and I started doing some studying and thinking through, and I want to be clear. My conviction is this. The regenerate heart is a new heart. God has given us a new heart, a heart of flesh as opposed to the heart of stone. That's taught in Jeremiah's, or Ezekiel, sorry, Ezekiel. The regenerate heart is new, but still in the process of sanctification. 
Al Mohler said, but sanctification is not an end in and of itself. There is glorification. Showing that even though we're made new, we're broken. Even though we're made new, we're still subject to sin. But the unregenerate heart, however, is deceitful and desperately, desperately wicked. One theologian said, One un- our understanding of the human condition or the human heart condition is how we make sense of the headlines around us. I went to a foster parenting seminar yesterday to get hours to keep our license as foster parents. And at the end, they had a talk on sex trafficking. And I can't begin to tell you how that blew my mind to hear statistics and stuff. And there was a lady there who began to share for about 30 minutes on her 18-year journey in the world of sex trafficking. And I kept thinking, that's the condition of the heart. How could a man do that? And the problem is the buyers, the sex buyers. That's where the real problem is. It's not the pimps. It's not the women. It's not the men. It's not the boys. It's not the girls. It's the buyers that fuel it. Everybody's got their part. I get that. Some guilty, some innocent. But it's the buyers that come and say, I want to pay for this. I want to pay for that. A man comes up and says, I want a young boy. What do you have for me? I want this young girl. What do you have for me? It's a condition of the heart. When we we see that, our face responds in disgust. We can't help it. But what you need to marry together is the reality of what you feel and just that short little story I told you from a testimonial yesterday. A woman who was brought in, she was preyed upon because she had a low self-esteem because she was from a broken home. As a 14-year-old girl, a guy comes and he woos her. He showers her with affirmation, with love as far as she understood it. And he gave her money and he got her hooked on, he got her hooked on drugs. And then she was well into the world of sex trafficking. 18 years. That's the byproduct of the heart's condition. No wonder Calvin said our hearts are idle factories. No wonder Esau in Hebrews chapter 12 when he came to God begging, begging that God might restore the blessing, that he sold his birthright, begging for it to be restored. It said that he sought He sought repentance with eyes filled with tears, but he was denied. He was rejected. Why? Because his heart had deceived him to the point to think that he really wanted something that he didn't want. And God saw right through him. And it's recorded in the text by the author of Hebrews. His concern was more to get the blessing. His concern was more what God could do for him than him receiving right relationship with God himself. And I think that's the mantra of humanity. To be clear, there are those who are nothing more than charlatans and schemers. There are those that know that they're not in Christ. They don't even, they pretend to be it, but nothing more. There are those. But then there are those who are truly deceived. There are those who really believe, like Joshua Harris most likely, believe they were in Christ. And the odds are he may not be, or never was. There are those who believe they are in the faith only to fall away in time. Either way, both are indicative of a wicked, deceitful heart. The wicked heart is so deceptive that we can spend a lifetime speaking with Christian fluency while being completely estranged from God and His saving grace. Now, I know this is a difficult place to leave off, but I want to give you a little signpost for next week because there's just no time.
and I don't want to rush. We want to talk later about the question of how do we know that we're in Christ? What's the litmus test? Where can, where can we go from the scriptures to find that security? Because when we see something like this, it rattles us. Maybe it sends us into a little bit of a faith crisis. So we'll discuss what do we do when we're in a faith crisis because what normally happens is it pushes you towards truth or it pushes you away from truth. So we'll discuss those things as well. And then we're just going to have to discuss how do we as Christians respond? How do we respond to something like this? Because jokes are being made. He kissed dating goodbye. He also kissed faith goodbye. He kissed orthodoxy goodbye. And quite frankly, it's just not a laughing matter. I mean, this is the wicked deceitfulness of the heart on a platter for the world's stage to see. And it's absolutely grievous. So that's what we'll talk about to finish this up next week, and then we'll get back in John. Let's pray together, and we'll be dismissed. Father, I pray that the way that this discussion so far has landed would be in an appropriate way. Lord, I don't deviate much from expository preaching. I just felt in my heart, it's just, it was just, it's just been heavy on me, Lord. You know that. It's been heavy on me, and, and Lord, I, just, I, I needed to take time to think through it and petition you. And Lord, I feel that our church body, I want them, I want them to know, I want them to know how to respond to these things. I want them to, to think rightly about these kind of things and these questions that come up. And, and maybe I'm the last one to think through it, Lord. Maybe I'm the last one to have these answers, Lord. Maybe you've, you've already solidified all these things with all, the, with all these people here. And if that's the case, praise you for it. Thank you for it. Lord, thank you that we could be reminded, that we could be admonished, that we could be instructed here today. Lord, I pray that we would apply these things in the right way. Lord, that these things would be a comfort to us as we think through them. Lord, that our, our faith wouldn't be rattled. Lord, that we wouldn't be sent over the edge when a leader falls. But Lord, at the same time, that we would look at it with such sincerity and, 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 and such grief, Lord, that we can't help but to pray and petition you for these people and to pray for the people that are under these or those who have left the faith those who have walked away from what they claim to believe. Lord, most likely those who never were in Christ. Lord, I pray that you would use your gospel that they know. That they know, Father, I pray that you would use it to finally bring them to salvation. Lord, this is, God, it's just it's such a picture of the natural mind that is set on natural things. It's such a picture of 1 Corinthians when it says it's impossible. It's impossible to believe. It's impossible to perceive these things because the, mat, the natural mind will not allow it. Lord, I pray that none of us are living in deceit, Lord, that our hearts that are wicked, Lord, that our hearts aren't deceiving us, Lord. I pray that we wouldn't follow our heart, but that we would be renewed in the transformation of our mind, which is what you've told us. Lord, that we would think on truth. And Lord, that we would create that we would develop a stronger apologetic in our own practice of life that we would become disciplined father i pray that we wouldn't ride the coattails of what someone else says and we would say well i believe this because piper believed this i believe this because edwards wrote this but we would believe it because we've tested it in light of the scriptures ourselves and we've become convictional lord and we've trusted that you have revealed it to us by the holy spirit so that we don't stand on the shoulders of Pipe or, or stand on the shoulders of, of, of Edwards or Spurgeon or any of these guys, but Lord, that we can rest on your word as we understand it. 
I thank you that you would give us means of understanding by faithful men and women who have done the work and who have pursued you and spent a lifetime learning and grow, excuse me, growing in Christ that we might lean on them. But Lord, may our faith become our own. May it become our own. And not just a recapitulation or regurgitation of someone else's faith. Make us strong in our faith, God. Give us boldness in our faith. Lord, that we might be ready to give a defense for the hope that's in us. In Jesus' name, amen.